Brian McClanahan Show, episode 224. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan where you can watch this podcast. You can find all my social media buttons on brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N McClanahan.com. And while you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. There's also a button at the top of the page that allows you to do that. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also click on that shop button on that page, and it'll take you out to my Red Bubble store where you can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. I don't want to go through all the list of things. There's just dozens and dozens of items to get. Really neat stuff, so... Uh, you're going to want to get that Red Bubble Brian McClanahan Show logo apparel and all the things you can get there. Also, you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. I've got six classes for sale. A lot of great stuff. I mean, you've got dozens and dozens of lectures. My my largest course is my, Americans Con- my American Constitutions course, if I can speak today. 40 lectures. 40 lectures. Great stuff. I've also got a course on the war, on reconstruction uh, and recreation, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, the Declaration of Independence, Secession, a lot of good stuff. So you want to get one, and there's going to be two more this year, and I'm working on those as we speak, maybe even three more this year. So there's a lot of stuff, and the people that do enroll for free get the best deals when the new classes come out. Just ask anybody else, this last class, Reconstruction, came out, they knew about it first, they got the best deal better than anybody else got and ever will get again. So you're going to want to get in and enroll because you'll find out find out about the courses first and you will get the best deal. And you can also use my, to support the show, you can also use my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It is Learn True, T-R-U-E, History, LearnTrueHistory.com. Again, use that link. You can get over 20 courses for a very low price. Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, yours truly, Bob Murphy. A lot of great people uh, teaching economics, philosophy, history, good stuff. So going out to that uh, website as well, learntruehistory.com, and subscribe there. Now, all that said, let's talk about the issue of the day. It was, uh, of course, we had Lincoln assassinated on the 14th of April. We had Jefferson's birthday, the last podcast I covered, Jefferson's birthday. So I want to talk about presidential power with Abraham Lincoln. Because uh, the whole point of my Nine Presidents book was to talk about presidential power. Where did the presidency go off the rails? Where did it start? And one of the, one of the slogans that we used in the marketing campaign for that now, two, oh, gosh, three years ago almost, was it didn't start with Obama. Because you had, of course, at the time, conservatives saying, well, I mean, this thing just went off the rails with Obama. It just got bad with Obama. Obama's messed everything up. I mean, look, Obama was terrible when it came to abuse of power. Obama was terrible. He was a terrible ideologue. There's no doubt about it. But to say it all started with Obama is a little bit short-sighted. Now you've got the lefties running around worried about Trump. Oh, Trump's driving this presidency off the rails. Trump is terrible. Look at he's abusing power everywhere. It's collusion. 
collusion with Russia, all this stuff, all these things that uh, they're getting into, all these corruptions all over the place. Look, we're arresting all these people. All these people are indicted. Look how awful Donald Trump is. Uh, well, I mean, we can certainly point to abuse of power by the Trump administration. There's no doubt about it. And that's because both Obama and Trump are symptoms of the disease, which is an elected king in America. And that was the whole point of the book. And I know people got very upset with me when I criticized people like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Andrew Jackson. How can I say that George Washington did anything wrong? <gasps> well, because he did. Or Abraham Lincoln. The, the chapters that everyone wanted to talk about when I would do the radio interviews for that book were Lincoln and Washington. I mean, because I was generally on conservative radio. So they had, they had no problem with me bashing Obama or bashing Franklin Roosevelt, even though, I mean, a lot of conservatives tend to like Roosevelt. Uh, they were, so they were, they were uh, you know, a little bit cautious with that one. Same thing with Harry Truman. Harry Truman is one of these individuals that uh, the, the modern neoconservatives seem to like. I mean, he's one of them because he's a cold warrior, right? And so it's all about foreign policy. We're going to go out and get the bad guys around the world. So forget about the fair deal. Forget about nationalization of the steel industry. Forget about all those things. Forget about the fact that Harry Truman did not dismantle uh, the World War II uh, apparatus when it came to both the U.S. military and the economy. Basically, just transferred it over to something else. Forget about the fact that that essentially solidified the World War II bureaucracy and kept it in place. Forget about all of that, all that unconstitutional government. He was against commies around the world. He took us and tried to get us to fight commies. I mean, forget about the fact that he had commies in his administration. Forget about all of that. Nope. Truman was a good guy. Um, I mean, this is, they don't mind if you attack Lyndon Johnson, right? But, I mean, Lyndon Johnson had his, his he, he was he was right on some things. So, we can't, so, I mean, the fact is, or Woodrow Wilson, right? I mean, Wilson is, is red meat. We can attack Wilson. Uh World War One. It's interesting. Conservatives in World War One. They're well. I mean, I don't know about World War One now. I mean, this is would. Uh, I don't know about that. Though, uh, I mean, I think that generally conservatives are for World War One. Uh, even though World War One did so much to disrupt conservatism around the world, and actually killed it. Um, but you, know, you get into these people like that, and they're they're at least receptive to it. But not when you take on Abraham Lincoln, and not when you take on George Washington. Uh, so conservatives are uh, tend to be inconsistent, and so do lefties, because lefties are okay with taking on, say, George W. Bush. Well, George W. Bush is abusing power. Donald Trump, Trump, is abusing power, right? But Obama, no, no, no. Obama was careful about executive power. Obama, you know, he was careful. Bill Clinton, careful about executive power. I mean, these people are careful. Uh, they, they, they aren't, they aren't abusing it at all. And so lefties have their own people that they won't allow you to attack. What's interesting about all that, of course, is that in the age of identity politics, the whole point of that, I think, for the left is to, is to deflect from being able to attack these people for anything. You can't, attract, you can't attack Obama because then you're called a racist. You're only opposing Obama because uh, he's African-American, right? Uh, you can't attack this candidate because they're a woman. You can't attack this candidate because uh, they're a homosexual, whatever the case may be. You can't attack these people for this uh, because, I mean, then it just proves that you're anti-whatever uh, identity these people are. Uh, and I think that's deflection because these people all warrant attack based on their positions, 
because their positions, for the most part, are ridiculous. But um, you can't attack Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's a Hispanic woman. And just by saying, by attacking them, you're showing that you're a sexist and you're a racist. It's, if, they were, if they were a white man, you wouldn't say this stuff. Really? I mean, nobody attacked Bill Clinton, right? <laughs> I, I, no one ever attacked. Nobody's ever gone out and said Franklin Roosevelt's a bad president or Lyndon Johnson's a bad president. Nobody's ever done that. The only reason you're attacking these people and being mean to them is because they're XYZ identity. It's to deflect. And people are, are, are on to the game now. They're becoming savvy about it. And they're starting to say, that's just stupid. Uh, and it's, I mean, I know there's a lot of people in the Twitterverse. And I, what's really funny is uh, Nancy Pelosi has bashed uh, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez for this. You know, Twitter doesn't make you a smart person. doesn't make you very popular. Just because you have Twitter followers doesn't mean anything. Uh, but uh, she, she said that, which is hilarious. You know, five people. She got five people in her group. <laughs> I think it's funny because Pelosi realizes that uh, Cortez is a problem. Um, but uh, the fact is, uh, you, you can't, people are on to the, to the game now. And so while people in the Twitterverse and a lot of millennials are, are you know, being duped by this, People are saying, you know, this is this is this is just bunk. People can attack you for your ideas, and it has nothing to do with who you are. You might you might identify with those things. That might be your whole being, but your ideas are ridiculous. And it's not because of who you are; it's because of what you're saying. Look, if Cortez didn't say such stupid things, no one would attack her. So, I mean, that's that. So, what's interesting is the lefties are inconsistent, the righties are inconsistent. I should say they're not really that. I mean, they're neoconservatives. But then I see this piece in Vox. Vox, of all places. It says, quote, The Constitution doesn't say enough about limiting executive powers by Julia Zari. And Julia Zari is a far leftist. I mean, this woman, uh, she is a professor. I can't remember where she teaches. And I didn't print that out. But she is a professor, uh, a political science professor. And she is, she is out there on her positions. But this piece piqued my interest because, okay, hey, here's a lefty saying what I wrote a whole book about. Yeah, the Constitution doesn't say enough. In fact, in that book, in Nine Presidents, I offer amendments that we should ratify, that should be proposed and ratified to limit executive power because I agree. The Constitution doesn't say enough about limiting executive power. This is one of the things that the founding generation, the opponents of the Constitution, we're worried about. Now, of course, Vox has got to put, and I'll show it to you, a nice picture of Donald Trump on there because it's only about Donald Trump, you see. And they, the piece ultimately concludes that, which is where it's stupid. But regardless, I'm going to read this. It's a very short little piece, um, you know, just a few hundred words. So uh, Julia Zari says this, the novelist E.L. Doctorow once wrote, one cannot consider the U.S. Constitution without getting into an argument with it. The sparse text of Article 2, which establishes the executive branch, especially invites such argument. Well, that's true. I mean, this is what the opponents of the Constitution said. So she's right. For one thing, in contrast with Article 1, which lays out the duties and limitations of Congress, uh, not just the duties and limitations of Congress, but the general government. So she's a little off there. Article 2 barely says anything, leaving us to interpret what executive power means and what its limits are. Well, I mean, sort of. I'll get into that at the end of this. Uh, there is a way to, to not interpret it, but to understand it. When we look at these two articles, the text and the structure of the Constitution are in tension. Congress has the power of the person to declare war, as well as a role in the foreign policy duties of the president. 
like the requirement of the Senate to ratify treaties. Yet the structure of the government puts the president in a position to make both decisions, both make decisions and articulate them in a way that Congress rarely can. American presidents lag behind their counterparts in other countries when it comes to legislative leadership, as Zach Elkins points out. But viewed through other lens, another lens, the presidency is also alarmingly powerful. So uh, she is not happy with the fact that President uh, Zari is not happy with the fact that President is not chief legislator with the power as other other executives. Well, this is a good thing. We don't want the president to be chief legislator. That was not one of the roles of the presidency. In fact, this was pointed out. Alexander Hamilton pointed this out in Federalist 69. We said the king has this, the president doesn't have that. And one of the things was the power of the purse, which is basically making you chief legislator. So that's a good thing, right? Questions about the boundaries of presidential power emerged almost immediately in the early republic. Not with Andrew Jackson's swagger and bank killing, not with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, not with the progressives and the expansion of the administrative state. Well, this is interesting. Here's a progressive actually calling out the progressives. Uh, here's a progressive uh, interested in Abraham Lincoln in the war. Now, she, she cites an article here. She, she provides a link to an article that basically exonerates Lincoln for abuse uh, of power during the war and uh, for his suspension of habeas corpus, which was completely unconstitutional. But regardless, she's at least pointing out that there are questions. This is a Jonathan Turley position. Uh, Turley is no right winger. Um, this is the Jennifer Weber position uh, who's come out and said, you know, Lincoln did abuse power, uh, potentially. I mean, this is, this is problematic. Uh, Jennifer Weber, who wrote a book entitled Copperheads, I mean, she's no, she's no right winger. Um, so that at least they're being honest and saying there are some problems with Lincoln, and we need to be clear about that. But she says, our revered first president, George Washington, shaped the partisan debate over the new nation's relationship with France and asserted the president's authority to determine the direction of foreign policy with his 1793 de declaration of neutrality and the conflict between Britain and France. Thomas Jefferson subsequently resigned from Washington's cabinet. Uh, this, is, this is something I bring out in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. It's almost like she read my book. No, she probably didn't. But uh, this is something I brought out in that book. There was a heated debate over that neutrality proclamation because did, did Washington have the authority to say that the United States is going to be neutral unilaterally? Could he do that? That was a big question. The new, and she continues, the neutrality proclamation example illustrates not only that presidential power has been controversial from the beginning, but also that the use of this power always plays out in a political context. The proclamation challenged some understandings of when the, what the president can do and mapped onto substantive conflicts about the country's leadership with Britain and France. Now, I mean, this is where Hamilton and Madison picked up their pens. Madison uh, was highly critical of, this is the Pacificus-Helvidius debates, Pacificus being Hamilton, Helvidius being Madison. And they, they, they were interested in this, the, the mechanism of it. Can the president issue such a proclamation? Wasn't that it wasn't a bad idea. It was a great idea to stay neutral at the time. But can the president do it unilaterally? And of course, Madison uh, said that he couldn't. And of course, Congress had to be involved in this. Hamilton said he could. The president could issue a unilateral proclamation of neutrality. So this is a very interesting question, and it's one that I do bring up in the book, in my Nine Presidents book. 
I actually side with, with Madison on this. But Washington created a very dangerous precedent here. It was the president's proclamation power. Of course, it wasn't the only proclamation that Washington issued. But a proclamation is a regal thing. It's what kings do, particularly when it comes to war, to foreign policy and powers of the purse. So Hamilton had said in Federal 69, the president does not have power of the sword. But here the president is saying, we're going to stay neutral. That's Congress's job to decide, not the president's job. Now, the president is head of state. And so the president can try to negotiate those things, but then a treaty would have to be put forward. Congress could pass pass legislation saying, hey, we're staying out of this war. Congress could do that. That would be valid. But that's not exactly what was happening here. Certainly, the courts have sometimes stepped into a limit executive power, creating precedent around concepts like executive privilege, war powers, and uh, I can grab the other page here, which is sticking together, and scope of executive power. But the uncertainty around the bounds of acceptable presidential behavior remains, perhaps nowhere more apparent than in the question of impeachment. Accountability to the electorate not and not constitutional barriers have served as a main way to place limits on an expansive executive branch. Uh, yeah, impeachment. This is an interesting one. Of course, the Constitution was sold that if the president abused power, he could be impeached. But we've seen that it's never been used that way. If that was the case, and this is a statement I made when I was doing the publicity for my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution, which um, has become one of my best-selling books. I mean, this, that thing took off recently. Um, and that's because Barnes & Noble had it for about eight bucks. So you could get it. I don't know if, I don't think they still have it for that price. But it, uh, certainly... Um, it was a, a popular book for a while. But uh, this was how the Constitution was sold. Hey, look, the president abuses power. And, and Madison had a whole list of reasons why the president should be impeached or could be impeached. And, of course, we trim that down to high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, you got to go back and look at that list. And this is what I'm going to talk about with where we can get an idea for what the executive branch was supposed to do. And I've already alluded to it a little bit with Hamilton and the Federalist Essays. But that wasn't the only thing. Um Impeachment was supposed to be a powerful tool to rein in the presidency. It just hasn't been used that way. It was supposed to be something that could go out and ensure that the president would not abuse power. Uh, but And I said in, that, in the publicity for that that virtually every president of the last hundred years should have been impeached. And we can go back and find other examples of presidents before that that should have happened. Certainly Lincoln should have been impeached. We could even make a case for Andrew Jackson. James K. Polk, perhaps. Uh, but the fact is, the president is not supposed to have unlimited power, and impeachment was supposed to be the check. Now, um, the way it's been used, when we saw it with Andrew Johnson, that was a faulty use of impeachment. Johnson was not abusing power. He was vetoing legislation that was unconstitutional. That's what the president should do. Uh, we can say, though, that Bill Clinton was properly impeached because... He violated the law. He lied under oath. Well, that's a high crime and misdemeanor, without question. So Clinton was properly impeached. Johnson was not. Clinton should have been removed from office. Johnson should not, and he wasn't. Neither one was. But I think you can make a convincing case that Clinton should have been removed from office, but not just for lying under oath, for all kinds of other things, too. Amendments of the Constitution have reflected this reality. Few have taken on... Defining the limits of presidential power. I, I mean, Azari is on to, again, it's almost like she read my book. 
I should just send her a copy of it. She wouldn't like it, but I should just send her a copy. Hey, read this. I said what you're saying three years ago. In fact, if I pull up this book, here, i got to get it off my bookshelf, um, and I look at the, the uh, last of the book, what can be done, I list, uh, let's see, seven amendments that could rein in executive abuse. And I point out where we need to change some parts of the language of the Constitution. Um, and so I offer an amendment. I mean, this is this is fun stuff. If you haven't read the book, you know, for example, we should limit the uh, the presidency to one term. Um, we should make it to where the president has to uh, uh, cite uh, when he vetoes any any objections must cite express constitutional justification for disapproval, and the president may disapprove any item of appropriation in any bill. If any bill is approved by the president, any item of appropriation contained therein which is not disapproved shall become law. And um, that's a line-item veto. I say that uh, a three-fifths, not two-thirds, but three-fifths over, to override the veto. So make it a little lower threshold. And I talk about Cindy. I mean, there's other things that the mechanism of the veto that have to be addressed. Um, I, I talk about limiting the president's power to deploy the militia. Um, I talk about, you know, getting rid of executive agreements, which are problematic. I add uh, into the into the um, impeachment process what you can impeach a president for, not just high crimes and misdemeanors, but also incapacity, negligence, perfidy, peculation, oppression, violation of the oath of office, abuse of power, including violation of the laws of the United States or laws of the several states. Um. I, I give an amendment that would limit unilateral executive authority. So if you haven't read that, I mean, I'm not going to steal my thunder on that book. you got to read the rest of it. But go out and pick it up because I do. And, and this is one other thing that, oh, well, how can you say we need amendments? I mean, that's stupid. Nobody's going to ratify amendments. But look, when you got lefties at Vox saying, hey, we need to think about this, I, this needs to be a bipartisan effort to rein in executive power because it doesn't matter. Look, right now the lefties are upset because Trump is abusing power in their mind. But as soon as a Democrat gets, and the Republicans, let's abuse power, let's go and get these fools. And this is the problem. Once once the left is back in power, they're going to abuse power too. So let's come together and say, hey, you know what the real problem is here? Abuse of power. Let's make it to where it doesn't happen. Uh, now, a great deal of debate has been devoted to how presidents are selected. And as Jonathan Ladd and Seth Maskett point out, a few have altered how presidents are selected or leave office. But the text of the Constitution has changed very little with regard to what the president does while he or she occupies that office. I mean, throws in the she. We've never had a female president. So why would you say she? Just say how well he has occupied office. Presidents are now inaugurated in January instead of March, limited to two terms, and empowered to appoint a vice president if that office becomes vacant. They are also, at least in theory, subject to removal if their cabinet and Congress agree that they're unfit to serve. But no successful amendment has managed to clarify the conditions under which impeachment is necessary, the scope of presidential foreign policy power, or the proper boundaries between the president and Congress. Well, gee, I just proposed seven of those in my book. So, sometimes the courts have decided this, but often presidents can do what is particularly politically feasible. It turns out that is quite a lot. 
Presidents can't usually transform partisan debates or shift the power balances among actors in society, but their proclamations, executive orders, speeches, and military actions all take place against this backdrop, sometimes changing and ultimately reconfiguring political conflicts. Now, here's where she is a little bit nearsighted. The president is increasingly the focal point of the political system. Is increasingly, it has been, since the 1860s. It's not increasingly. This has been something that's going on since Lincoln. We know that the politics of the presidency have become highly partisan, and that there have always been, well, pretty, pretty partisan, especially when issues like impeachment were on the table. The contemporary presidency finds itself at the intersection of a particularly nasty combination, highly personalized politics that also reflects symbolism important to each party, closely divided political contests, and declining confidence in political institutions. It's a perfect storm for partisans to identify with the president, look the other way from abuses of power, and provide no political incentives for other actors to keep the president in check. I agree 100%. I agree with someone at Vox. Again, this needs to be a bipartisan effort to rein in presidential power. Presidents began to build up their own bases of political power separate from members of Congress or local political bosses in the late 1800s. This process is is now completed, and we are seeing with Donald Trump and congressional Republicans that the president, as the most visible symbol of partisanship, that the country has to offer has has substantial sway over the party and the electorate. It's not just with Donald Trump. This was with Barack Obama, with George George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. I mean, look, the last chapter of my Nine Presidents book is a critique of all of these things for the last 30 years. It's not just with Donald Trump. As of mid-April, the extent to which institutions and politics have constrained President Trump remains an open question. While a number of political scientists have characterized Trump's White House as, as weak, he has still used the executive branch, especially the Department of Homeland Security, to enact a set of policies that have affected millions of lives. Administration, administration critics have expressed fear about a purge at DHS and the unchecked power that potentially lies in that department, which was created in the, week, in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And while the administration has suffered from a number of setbacks in court, particularly around its changes to immigration and asylum practices, there's nothing keeping Trump from tweeting about these issues and rallying supporters, or apparently from telling border agents to ignore the courts. It remains to be seen how the situation will unfold and whether restraints are in place or we are in truly lawless territory. The government structure created by the Constitution allows the president a great deal of power and flexibility. This is one of the reasons why opponents of the document said don't ratify it. The text is very little to describe the nature of this power or its limits, leaving presidents free to do what they can get away with politically much of the time. And our current political environment may just be seeing the beginning of what this means. No, we're seeing the outcome of what this means. You see, there is a, a, a ratification of the Constitution, and it was defined. When, when you look at the ratification debates and the essays in favor of the Constitution, you look at Federalist 69, and I'm just going to use that because it's conspicuous, but there's other people saying the same things. The president cannot abuse power. But this is one of the great fears about the Constitution. I think that Azari is on to this 100%, even though she's focusing, Vox is going to focus on Trump, and I would not agree with her on some of the problems that she points out But uh, when it comes to Trump. But um, certainly, the abuse of power, if there is a perception of it, well, we need to make it to where that can't happen. And so this is why I have proposed seven amendments that would reign in executive power. These are things that should be considered left and right. Should be considered left and right. To reign in executive power. 
But we don't do that. We don't do that. All we do is praise it when our guy's in power and critique it when our guy's not because the other guy's in power. That is highly problematic. Something that we should be much more receptive to a much a, a, a bipartisan look at executive power. Executive power is the greatest bane to American liberty. Abuse of executive power is the greatest bane to American liberty. So these are things that are important to consider, and I'm glad that someone on the left is actually looking at this too. Uh, now, I know a lot of libertarians have focused on this, uh, but conservatives not so much, unfortunately. There are, when, when Obama was in office, well, we got, we got to rein in this, this bad guy. I mean, we got to do something about this executive abuse, but now Trump's there, not, not whisper, it's crickets. And of course, when, when Obama was in office, the lefties were all for it, and they were, they were all for executive abuse. Oh, well, you mean, they would look the other way. And now that Trump's in power, it's a bunch of Vox stuff. I mean, these people are all over it. What we really need is consistency. What we really need is people saying, you know, this is the real problem here is the presidency in general, and let's rein in executive power. Um, so this is one of the reasons, I mean, why I wrote Nine Presidents Who Screw Up America. It's the, it's the primary reason I wrote it, because I wanted to draw attention to this issue, and not everyone liked it on the right. Um, not many people on the left paid attention to it, clearly. But, I mean, it's almost like this is a Julia Zari read my book. Uh, I know she didn't. Uh, but it's almost like she did because I was saying these these exact same things uh, in 2016. So we need consistency. The American political tradition is suspicion of executive power. That is one of the things that you get out of the ratification debates. Americans were highly suspicious of this stuff. It's just unfortunate that we've forgotten that. And we forgot it because of Abraham Lincoln. Because of the war and because of the way the war turned out, uh, we've forgotten why we were suspicious of executive power to begin with. And if we can get anything out of, uh, uh, out of you know, a lefty wants to take anything from what I say, it's that. I agree with you 100%. we got to rein in executive power. I'm on board with it. Uh, you need to be on board with it, though, too, when your people are in power. So uh, let's, let's come together on that and have a bipartisan effort to try to rein in executive power. And read My Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. It's a great book. If you haven't read it yet, go pick it up. I mean, you can get it now in paperback. Uh, they still have it at Barnes & Noble all the time. You can get it in paperback. You can get it. It's pretty cheap, I think, in the hardback form on Amazon right now. For a time, they actually dropped the uh, Kindle version of it down to like 99 cents here and there. When there's a presidential holiday, they'll drop it down. Uh, so get it when it's on Kindle for like 99 cents. It's a great deal. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.